Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Free Reads. It's been a quiet week here on the lake, as a certain writer likes to say. Only, I don't live on the imaginary Wobegon, but rather beside my own very real lake here in New Hampshire. Hmm. In any event, due to lack of news and such, this will be a short intro. I've been reading novels by students, former students, friends, and poking away at my own novel in progress. The season is turning, and I have begun to forego my morning swim on days when the temperature dips below 62. Brr. Meanwhile, on the Godspeed, things are heating up, as Adel joins the rest of the crew in worrying about the mystery of Speedy's odd behavior, which is about to get even odder. And with a theatrical twist, here on Part 5 of... The Wreck of the Godspeed. Day 12. Since the Godspeed left the orbit of Menander, fifth planet of Hollowell's star, to begin its historic voyage of discovery, 69,384 of us stepped off her transport stage. Only about 10,000 of us were pilgrims. The rest were itinerant techs and prospective colonists. On average, the pilgrims spent a little over a standard year as passengers, while the sojourn of the colony builders rarely exceeded 60 days. As it turned out, Sister Li Hong Rain held the record for the longest pilgrimage. She stayed on the Godspeed for more than seven standards. At launch, the cognizer in command of the Godspeed had been content with a non-gendered persona. Not until the 130th year did it present as the captain, a male authority figure. The captain was a sandy-haired mesomorph, apparently a native of one of the highest G worlds. His original uniform was modest in comparison to later incarnations, gray and apparently seamless, with neither cuff nor collar. The captain first appeared on the walls of the library, but soon spread throughout the living quarters, and then began to manifest as a fetch that could be projected anywhere, even onto the surface. The Godspeed mostly used the captain to oversee shipboard routine, but on occasion he would approach us in social contexts, Inevitably, he would betray a disturbing knowledge of everything that we had ever done while aboard. We realized, to our dismay, that the Godspeed was always watching. These awkward attempts at sociability were not well received. The captain, Persona, was gruff and humorless, and all too often presumptuous. He was not at all pleased when one of us nicknamed him Speedy. Later iterations of the Persona did little to improve his popularity. It wasn't until the 332nd year that the stubborn captain was supplanted by a female persona. The new Speedy impressed everyone. She didn't give orders. She made requests. She picked up on many of the social cues that her predecessor had missed, bowing out of conversations where she was not welcome, 
not only listening, but hearing what we told her. She was accommodating and gregarious, if somewhat emotionally needy. She laughed easily, although her sense of humor was often disconcerting. She didn't mind at all that we called her speedy, and she kept our secrets. Only a very few saw the darker shades of the Godspeed's persona. The texts found her eccentricities charming, and the colonists celebrated her for being such a prodigious discoverer of terrestrials. Most pilgrims recalled their time aboard with bemused nostalgia. Of course, the Godspeed had no choice but to keep all of us under constant surveillance. We were her charges, her cargo. Over the course of 1,087 standards, she witnessed six homicides, 11 suicides, and 249 deaths from accident, disease, and old age. She took each of these deaths personally, even as she rejoiced in the 268 babies conceived and born in the bedrooms of Dream Street. She presided over 2,118 marriages, 4,089 divorces. She witnessed 29,815,247 acts of sexual congress, not including masturbation. Since she was responsible for our physical and emotional well-being, she monitored what we ate, who we slept with, what drugs we used, how much exercise we got. She tried to diffuse quarrels and mediate disputes. She readily ceded her authority to the project manager and team leaders during a colonizing stop, but in interstellar space, she was in command. Since there was little privacy inside the Godspeed, it was difficult for Kamila, Adel, Jarek, Mary, John Mann, and Rob Mann to discuss their situation. None of them had been able to lure Sister out for a suit-to-suit conference, so she was not in their confidence. Adel took a couple of showers with Mary and Jarek. They played crank jams at top volume and whispered in each other's ears as they pretended to make out, but that was awkward at best. There was no way to send or encrypt messages that the Godspeed couldn't easily hack. John Mann hit upon a strategy of writing steganographic poetry under blankets at night and then handing them around to be read, also under blankets. We hear that love can't wait too long. Go and find her home. We fear that she who we seek must sleep all day, have dreams of night, killed by the fire up in the sky. Would we? Does she? Steganography, Adel learned from a whisperer in the library, was the ancient art of hiding messages within messages. When Robman gave him the key of picking out every fourth word of this poem, he read, We can't go home. She must have killed up wood. This puzzled him, until he remembered that the last pilgrim to leave the Godspeed before he arrived was Upwood Marcine. Then he was chilled. The problem with John Mann's poems was that they had to be written mechanically, on a surface with an implement. None of the pilgrims had ever needed to master the skill of handwriting. Their scrawls were all but indecipherable, and asking for the materials to write with aroused the Godspeed suspicions. Not only that, but John Mann's poetry was awful. Over several days, in bits and snatches, 
Adel was able to arrive at a rough understanding of their dilemma. Three months ago, while Adel was still writing his essay, Jarek had noticed that spacewalking on the surface of the Godspeed felt different than it had when he first arrived. He thought his hard suit might be defective until he tried several others. After that, he devised the test and led the others out, one by one, to witness it. If the Godspeed had actually been traveling at a constant 100,000 kilometers per second, rocks dropped anywhere on the surface would take the same amount of time to fall. However, when she accelerated away from a newly established colony, rocks dropped on the backside took longer to fall than rocks on the front side. And when she decelerated toward a new discovery... Once they were sure that they were slowing down, the pilgrims had to decide what it meant and what to do next. They queried the library, and, as far as they could tell, the Godspeed had announced every scan and course change she had ever made. In over a thousand years, the only time she had ever decelerated was when she had targeted a new planet. There was no precedent for what was happening, and her silence about it scared them. They waited, dissembled as best they could, and desperately hoped that someone back home would notice that something was wrong. Weeks passed, a month, two months. John Mann maintained that there could be only two possible explanations. The Godspeed must either be falsifying its navigation reports, or it had cut all contact with the continuum. Either way, he argued, they must continue to wait. Upwood's pilgrimage was almost over. He was scheduled to go home in another two weeks. If the Godspeed let him make the jump, then their troubles were over. Hours, or at most a day, after he reported the anomaly, Tex would swarm the transport stage. If she didn't let him make the jump, then at least they would know where they stood. No one mentioned a third outcome, although Upwood clearly understood that there was a risk that the Godspeed might kill or twist him during transport and make it look like an accident. Flawed jumps were extremely rare, but not impossible. Upwood had lost almost five kilos by the day he climbed onto the transport stage. His chest was a washboard of ribs, and his eyes were sunken. The other pilgrims watched in hope and horror as he faded into wisps of probability and was gone. Five days passed. On the sixth day, the Godspeed announced that they would be joined by a new pilgrim. A week after Upwood's departure, Adel Ranger Santos was assembled on the transport stage. Sister was horribly miscast as Miranda. Adel thought she would have made a better Caliban, especially since he was Ferdinand. In the script, Miranda was supposed to fall madly in love with Ferdinand, but Sister was unable to summon even a smile for Adel, much less passion. He might as well have been an old sock as the love of her life. Adel knew why the Godspeed had chosen the Tempest. She wanted to play Prospero. She'd cast Mary as Ariel and Camilla as Caliban. John Mann and Rob Mann were Trinculo and Stefano, and, along with Jarek, also took the parts of the various other lesser lords and sons and brothers and sailors. Adel found it a very complicated play even for Shakespeare. I am a fool, said sister, to weep when I am glad. 
She delivered the line like someone hitting the same note on a keyboard again and again. Adel had a whisperer feeding him lines. Why do you weep? Stop there. The godspeed waved her magic staff. She was directing the scene in costume. Prospero wore a full-length opalescent cape with fur trim, a black undertunic, and a small silver crown. Nobody says weep anymore. She had been rewriting the play ever since they started rehearsing. Adel, have you ever said weep in your life? No, said Adel miserably. He was hungry and was certain he would starve to death before they got through this scene. Then neither should Ferdinand. Let's change weep to cry. Say the line, Ferdinand. Adel said, Why do you cry? No, she shut her eyes. No, that's not right either. Her brow wrinkled. Try, why are you crying? Why are you crying, said Adel. Much better, she clapped hands once. I know the script is a classic, but after three thousand years, some of these lines are dusty. Miranda, give me I am a fool with the change. I am a fool, she said, to cry when I am glad. Why are you crying? Because I'm not worthy. I dare not even offer myself to you, much less ask you to love me. Here the Godspeed had directed her to put her arms on Adel's shoulders. But the more I try to hide my feelings, the more they show. As they gazed at each other, Adel thought he did see a glimmer of something in sister's eyes. Probably nausea. So, no more pretending. Sister knelt awkwardly and gazed up at him. If you want to marry me, I'll be your wife. She lowered her head, but forgot again to cheat toward the house, so that she delivered the next line to the floor. If not, I'll live as a virgin the rest of my life in love with nobody but you. We can't hear you, Miranda, said the Godspeed. She tilted her head to the side and finished the speech. You don't even have to talk to me if you don't want. Makes no difference. I'll always be there for you. Ferdinand, the Godspeed murmured, She's just made you the happiest man in the world. Adel pulled her to her feet. Darling, you make me feel so humble. So then you'll be my husband? Sure, he said. My heart is willing. He laid his hand against his chest. And here's my hand. Adel extended his arm. And here's mine with my heart in it. She slid her fingers across his palm her touch cool and feathery. And, prompted the Godspeed, and? With a sigh, Sister turned her face up toward his. Her eyelids fluttered closed. Adel stooped over her. The first time he had played this scene, she had so clearly not wanted to be kissed that he had just brushed his lips against her thin frown. The Godspeed wanted more. Now he lifted her veil and pressed his mouth hard against hers. She did nothing to resist, 
although he could feel her shiver when he slipped the tip of his tongue between her lips. Fine, said the Godspeed. Well, got to go. Sister twitched out of his embrace. See you in a bit. It will seem like forever. Adel bowed to her, and then they both turned to get the Godspeed's reaction. Better, she said. But Miranda, flow into his arms. He's going to be your husband, your dream come true. I know. Her voice was pained. Take your lunch break and send me Stefano and Trinculo. She waved them off. Topic of the day is... what? She glanced around the little theater, as if she might discover a clue in the empty house. Today you are to talk about what you're going to do when you get home. Adel could not help but notice Sister's stricken expression. Her eyes were like wounds, but she nodded and made no objection. As they passed down the aisle, the Godspeed brought her fetch downstage to deliver the speech that closed Act Three, Scene One. As always, she gave her lines a grandiloquent singing quality. Those two really take the cake. My plan is working out just great. But I can't sit around patting myself on the back. I've got other fish to fry. If I'm going to make this mess end happily ever after. And we'll stop there. Short intro and short outro. You've been listening to The Wreck of the Godspeed, which was first published in the anthology Between Worlds, edited by Robert Silverberg. Be sure to click back next week when Adel and his co-star have a nice long chat about the meaning of their lives on the Free Reads podcast. <laughs>